0: Good morning, everyone. If you are new to Revolution Church, we like to go through books of the Bible. And right now, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And I tell you what, the the beauty of going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, is we get to know our Savior, Jesus Christ, better and better. And I am fully convinced, just not only from personal experience, but from what the Word of God says, is the more you get to know Jesus, the more you love Him. The more you love Him, the more you become like Him. The more you become like Him, the more you become what God created you to be, which is to be conformed to the image of His Son. So let's get to know Jesus better this morning, amen? Does that sound good? All right, Sophia Baez is going to come, and she's going to read our scripture for us this morning. And Sophia, if you would use, let me give you this mic here. As you'll probably notice, Sophia and Jaime have one on the way. In fact, you can tell us about that if you want. Just stand right here, and you can read from right there. So, when when do you do, and what are we having? I'm having a boy. Yay! March
1: 27th. Benjamin.
0: Benjamin, what a great name! Cool. All right, you're up. Go ahead.
1: Sorry, I'm blind. That's okay. (laughs) When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If a man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered the house and left, <laughs> left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can just lay it down us let's, let's pray. So, Father, this morning, we cannot understand your word without the help of the Holy Spirit. Enlighten our eyes. Illuminate our minds. Help us this morning not just to see what this passage is saying, but to see Jesus. Let us behold his glory and be transformed from glory to glory, always being changed and never being the same. We ask all this in Jesus' wonderful name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So when I was maybe three or four years old, I barely remember this, but my parents took me and all of my brothers and sisters, I was the youngest of six, to this restaurant. It was kind of an old restaurant, kind of more of a diner style, East Coast and afterwards, my brother went, to, we were walking out, and he saw the candy machine in the lobby, and he decides to buy a Snickers. It was probably cost a quarter back then. It was one of those old time vending machines where you put in the corner and you pull, and then it falls down from the back. So he puts his quarter and he pulls down, and we're all walking out, and I hear a, Ugh! he had opened the Snickers and bit into it, and bit halfway, not only through the Snickers, but through a worm that was in the Snickers. Immediately spewed it out, and ran inside, just rinsed his mouth out over and over again. And Jerry did one of the grossest things we've ever seen, and that was eat that Snickers. And on the outside, the wrapper, Snickers, looked great. I mean, who, who doesn't like Snickers, right? Snickers satisfies, right? You know what the commercial tells you? And, uh, but on the inside, you didn't want to eat their Snickers. And you know, that's exactly what God thinks about hypocrisy. It looks all good on the outside, but on the inside, it really makes God sick. And, and Jesus says so much in this passage right here. So Jesus is at the peak of his ministry. He is um, he's becoming incredibly popular now where crowds are just thronging him. And again, how many did he, did he just get done feeding? Yeah, 5,000 men, and we estimate the crowd when you count wives and children and other things. How many, maybe? And he may, It could be as upward to 20,000 people. And this is before, you know, stadiums were common. This is just mass gatherings around Jesus and he's becoming super popular. And of course, what is that doing to the religious elite? They're becoming super jealous because that's what it's all about to them. It's about power. And he comes to this town of Gennesaret, which was not far from Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters. So the word Gennesaret means garden of the prince. Well, here's the prince of peace come. And he's like the second Adam who was the garden prince. But Jesus is the one that's going to do it right this time. And it says, and you know, there's Mark's favorite word immediately. They recognize him. So Jesus is a superstar right now. And that's not easy to do in this day where pretty much almost all Jewish men looked alike. Because here in our church, you could say, oh, you know, the guy with the beard or the guy without the beard. And that day, everybody had beards, okay? Except for the women, most of them. And, uh, and so, Jesus wasn't always easily recognized, but by this point, he is. There's also some reason to believe, maybe, that Jesus was taller than the average man. Because if we believe that the tomb in Israel is the one that's actually his, that belonged to um, Joseph of Arimathea, they actually, it looks like they had to chip out more around the head to make room for Jesus to fit. Because he was taller than the average man. But they, they recognized Jesus. And of course, that's our goal this morning is to recognize Jesus. Amen. And so these people literally ran around the whole region. Hey, Jesus is coming. You need to come see him. And they're just telling their friends. They're telling everybody because they're, they're seeing people fed miraculously. They're seeing people raised to life. People healed. The blind given sight and on and on. This, this was the most amazing thing. And even if most of them, which is true, were coming for the wrong reasons... They're wanting to see the magic show, the sleight of hand, and all these, this great, you know, who wouldn't want to see all those things, right? And get a free fish sandwich while you're at it. They're, they're coming for, many of them are coming for the wrong reasons, but they ran around the whole region, and they began to bring sick people on their beds. I wonder where they got that idea. Didn't Jesus just heal a guy who was lowered down from the ceiling on the, on the bed? So they're like, hey, you know, he can heal anybody. Let's carry these people. And they, st- they start copycatting the miracles, which is fine. And wherever he came in, he, went to all, he, didn't, he wasn't a discriminator of people. He went to the villages, the cities, the countryside. He went wherever to preach the gospel. And that, guess what else they did? They thought, even if we touch the fringe of his garment. Wait, does that also sound familiar? Isn't that what that lady just did? That she recognized his teaching as a rabbi, which is what the fringes were about So she embraced his teaching is what what embracing the fringe means. And let me tell you something. God doesn't separate his word from his works. His miracles are directly tied into the word of God. And so we we can't just accept Jesus without accepting the teachings of Jesus. And that's what they did did by touching the fringe of his garments. And so there's a group of people called Pharisees. That's when everybody in the crowd would go, boo, you know. And so the Pharisees were not the good guys but they actually had started about 500 to 50 years before that as the good guys, because Judaism had started to drift, especially during, more so during the silent years between Malachi and Matthew, where God's prophets weren't speaking, they weren't getting direct revelation from the Lord, and Judaism started to drift into liberalism and saying, well, maybe not all the Bible is true, and you know that same skepticism we see today, they were experiencing that then, and the Pharisees stood up and said, no, 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 all 39 books are true, And there was other religious um, teachers that only embraced the five books of Moses and thought all the rest was history. No, the Pharisees were the ones who got it right and said, no, all 39 books are true. This is the canon of scripture that God has given us and we will worship the Lord through this. And they were defenders of the faith. And they became very strict and militant about it and they fought and they fought and they fought. But then they became very much known for their fighting and their strictness to where that strictness grew and grew and grew. We saw that same thing here in the United States of America, where in the 1950s, liberalism crept in. And a lot of denominations were starting to say, well, we believe in Jesus. We just don't believe all his miracles are real. We just believe they were spiritual and they were metaphors and analogies. But Jesus didn't actually do that. And Jesus didn't literally rose, rise from the dead. He rose again in our hearts. And there was what was, rose the fundamentalists. And the fundamentalists stood up and said, no, no, the Bible is true. Not just the 39, but now the 27, and the Word of God is complete, and we believe it is inspired from Genesis to Revelation, and we believe Jesus literally was born of a virgin, that he literally performed miracles, he literally rose from the dead, and they fought to defend these things, and they became known as the fighting fundamentalists. Of course, now the media makes it, if you're a fundamentalist, it's a bad thing. And in many ways, it was, because the fundamentalists, were so strict about things that they became very strict about how you lived. Like women don't wear pants or wear makeup or whatever, and you don't go to the movie theaters, you don't do a lot of things. And they became very strict. They became very much like Pharisees. And so they started off as a good thing, but then they drifted. And so now you're seeing Christianity kind of like fragmented in different directions based on some of these things. There was also a group of people called the scribes. Okay? They didn't have photocopiers or printing presses. They if they were going to preserve and spread the Word of God, they had to do handwritten copies and manuscripts. Manuscript meaning manually write, script or write these things down. And so that was their job. In fact, old parchments would decay, and then you might have like, where they might have a worn hole in them, Well, then you're missing part of the Word of God, so they'd be like, no, we got to copy this before this happens. And when copies get old and fragmented and drying and start crippling, we burn them. Because we don't want anything around there that's confusing. So that's where we have copies of copies of copies. And people get all, say, well, see, the Bible's been translated, retranslated so many times, it doesn't even mean the same thing back then. Absolutely not true. If you just, just do a little bit of research on the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will see that, that were discovered back in the 1950s that, that the manuscripts that were, we have today that were preserved and still match our Bible. So you have the word of God in your hands. The scribes were experts in the word of God. So they kind of hung out with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers. The scribes were the preservers of the law. And so here's an archaeological Polaroid found in Jerusalem of the Pharisees. Just kidding. What what, what show is this from, y'all? The Chosen. So who's the older guy? Nicodemus. And here's a good test. Who's the other guy? Well, good for you, man. You guys are watching The Chosen. If you're not watching The Chosen, you really need to watch it. It's very biblical, very entertaining, and just absolutely amazing. But when, they, in fact, Shmuel makes a statement that, that was very true of what the Pharisees believed them, that the law is God. They worshiped the, the Bible so much that they deified the Bible. And Jesus came on the scene and says, you read the Scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life. They talk about me. You know, I, like I said, I came out of a fundamentalist group, and I technically I'm still a fundamentalist because I believe in the fundamentals of the faith, but I don't behave like much of a fundamentalist crowd. But I went to a church that was so committed to the Word of God that people would make fun of us and say, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bible. And that's kind of where the Pharisees were, that they worshiped the Bible more than the God of the Bible. Okay? The Bible is everything God wants us to have in writing, but there's a whole lot more to God than there's in the Bible. And that's not blasphemy because what, what did Luke write? If we were to write everything Jesus did and said, the books of the world could not contain everything he did just in the short three and a half years he was on earth. So the Pharisees were just totally dismayed when Jesus came on the scene. He blew everything and they were very caught up in all kinds of laws. They just took what Moses gave in 10 and they turned it into over 500 different laws on how you lived out the ten. So it says, and when they saw that his disciples ate hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, don't think that the disciples were out there just handling animals and then going around and eating their food. That's not what this is talking about. Of course they washed their hands. They didn't wash their hands the way the Pharisees washed their hands, which was this whole long ritual. And you would think, well, that was then. Just watch a video on YouTube of rabbis teaching you how to wash your hands today. They tell you you have to hold your hand this way, not this way. It has to be this much water, not this much water. You have to pour it twice, not more than two, not less than two. You cannot talk while you're doing this. You're not supposed to talk for a certain period after you do that. And it's just so all these complicated rules on how to do it. Just like the Pharisees, like nothing nothing has changed. Um, In fact, here's like a picture of how they might do it with their hand turned a certain way. And you have to use a certain type of water and all this. And then you... You pray a certain prayer, but not out loud while you do this. And again, is that anywhere in the Bible? No. Is it good to maybe tell your kids to go wash their hands? And as they're washing their hands, they thank the Lord for what their parents are doing? Of course. But they took it to a thing that was so far ahead that that it was not what the Bible was teaching. In fact, and, and here's what's interesting. It says the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat. Now, here's what happened what the Pharisees did was they took what was rules for the priest to go in and wash their hands a certain way, and they said, we're all going to do it. It was just rules for the priest going into the temple before his sacrifice and washing his hands at the labor to confess his sins and all that stuff before he did all that. And the Pharisees say, no, this isn't just a rule for the priest. It's rules for everybody. Now, what's also interesting about this phrase is that um, there was disagreement as whether all the Jews did this or not. In fact, there's a guy right here uh, named uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman used to be an evangelical preacher of the gospel and all that stuff. And then he came across what he thought were some contradictions in the Bible, like this one. And now he's just a flat-out atheist liberal who writes books against Jesus. Here's one called Jesus Interrupted. And it's basically saying how Jesus is not what we think he is and he's not God, that that was something that was made up by Constantine in 325, which is baloney. The first century believers died for that. Okay, You don't just die for something that just made up hundreds of years later. They were eyewitnesses. Anyway, but our, Bart Ehrman goes back to this phrase right here. He goes, well, that's ridiculous. You can read and research and see that not all the Jews did that. Only the priests did that. So here Mark makes a mistake Another mistake, according to him, in the Bible. See, here's more evidence that the Bible is not true. And he posted that on a blog. And immediately Christians who knew more than he did said, um, excuse me, but here's the facts. And they showed him that actually the, the Pharisees were making everyday people do what the priests were doing, and that was the problem. And so he says this, in response to my post yesterday about whether the author of Mark was a Jew, and he's saying, Mark... And, and, Mark was writing to Jews, but any... I'm sorry, not writing to Jews, writing to Romans. But anyway, he said, in which I said, no Jew would make the claim that Mark does in chapter 7 that all Jews wash their hands before eating. A claim that is simply not true. And He said, a couple of astute blog members have pointed out that there is another text, certainly written by a Jew, the letter of Arist- Aristius, from the first century BCE. He blithes in that whole political correctness stuff, B, B, C, E, which they say means before the common era, which we could say before Christ's era, uh, before and and earlier. And he says says something very similar about all Jews washing their hands. Hmm, I've only read the letter of Aristius about 75 times. You'd think I would have noticed that, but alas. And he retracted his statement. Now, notice his words give him away. He admits that he's read this letter that says all Jews wash their hands, written by a Jew in the first century. Non-biblical source, okay? He says he's read it 75 times. He says, you think I would have noticed that. Here's the question. Why didn't he notice it? He didn't want to. And I am convinced, and you've heard me say this before, that people who blog and, and vlog and do all this stuff on YouTube about how they're atheists, and they'll say, well, the Bible's wrong here, the Bible's wrong here. It's because they are seeing what they want to see. Think about that. If, I go, if, I, if I'm a college freshman and I grew up in church and my parents said, don't have sex before marriage and don't get drunk and don't party and don't do all those things, but I go to this college campus and man, there's a lot of hot girls everywhere and there's a whole lot going on, a whole lot of fun and I'm missing out and I'm thinking, man, but if I do that, I'm going to feel guilty and my parents will be disappointed and the Bible says this, blah, blah, blah. And then I walk into philosophy class where a professor tells me the Bible's not true and I'm like, hmm, if the Bible's not true, party hardy, let's go Friday night, you know? Man, obey the Bible or have girlfriends, you know? What do I do? And it's just convenient to all of a sudden become an atheist. I, I believe that 95%, if not 99%, of atheists choose that because they don't want to believe the Bible is true so they can do whatever they want and live whatever lifestyle they want. And I, I'm not judging them. That's what lost people do. That's what we did when we were lost, right? What they need to do is understand the truth of the Word of God. And you know what? When I come across something that's difficult in the Bible, I give God the benefit of the doubt. Instead of doubting God, I doubt my doubts. I think, well, maybe there's a reason I don't understand. Maybe the understanding was wrong with Gary, and I need to study a little further like this guy should have done. So um, so all the Jews actually did do it. But what they were holding to was not the teaching of Moses. It was the traditions. Everybody say Traditions the traditions of the elders. Now, are traditions bad? No. But are traditions equal with Scripture? No, they're not, absolutely not. And when traditions get too close to the equivalency of Scripture, one or the other is going to be pushed aside. And it's the Scripture that loses when people pit tradition versus Scripture. We need to make sure the Scripture is the one that always leads. Now, uh, and they had many other traditions. This, is, this was just one of them, Okay. They, they had, there was a certain way they washed their cups and their pots. In fact, if you go to a kosher restaurant, they will have certain pots and pans over here for the meat and certain pots and pans over here for the dairy, and the two should never touch. And you know where they get that from? From, from Deuteronomy where it says you don't boil a calf in its mother's milk. And they took that as, and see, don't put gravy on your meat. And they're like, that's why you know, Jews are missing out on some of the best biscuits and gravy that Mama ever cooked. You know? And so they keep those totally separate and they have copper vessels and they even, even the couches that they lean on when they're reclining at the dinner table, they have to wash those before they eat. And you could see where the Pharisees created a whole lot of work. Everybody wash their hands, wash them a certain way, wash their pots and pans a certain way, wash everything. Every meal, all this stuff, it just became crazy But think about what you might be thinking if you're a believer in God as you're doing this. See, God, look, I'm washing my hands the right way. See, God, I'm praying the right thing. Oh, but I'm not saying it out loud. See, God, I'm scrubbing this dish. I'm doing this for you. And you get very works-oriented. Look, God, look at all the stuff I'm doing for you. And that's what religion is. Religion is, look, God, can we impress you with all that we're doing? Now you owe us. And, And Christianity is, you can't do anything. Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything that could be done to save your soul was done on his cross. Everything we do for him now is out of thanksgiving. Not because somehow we'll earn his favor, but we realize we never could. But we just do it because we love him and we're thankful for him. And so the Pharisees come and they're like, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? They had elevated their traditions. The elders were an elite class amongst the Pharisees who established these traditions and took the law of Moses and said, now here's how you live it out practically. And every single one of those things became equal to the law of Moses, even though it was only their interpretation of it. Okay? Why do you guys not do that? And why do you eat with defiled hands? Again, it wasn't that the disciples weren't washing their hands in a normal way. It's just they weren't doing it that way. In fact, um, one rabbi in the first century, when he was in prison... He was given a certain amount of water and a certain amount of bread. And because he was only given this much water, he used it to wash his hands instead of drinking. He almost died of dehydration because he was so bent on washing his hands that way. That's where religion will kill you, literally. And so, um, in fact, many rabbis taught that if you didn't wash your hands properly, there was a certain demon that dwelt in the dirt that when you touched the bread you would actually, when you eat the bread, the demon would get on the bread, get inside of you, and that's how people got demon-possessed. And again, see what happens when you don't interpret the Bible properly, and more importantly, when you don't apply the Bible properly? God didn't mean for it to do it. He just meant common sense. Hey, go wash your hands before you eat. That's it, okay? But they took it to a whole nother level. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now think about that. Here's the religious class the Pharisees were the most popular. They were way more popular than the Pharisees because they offered a future and a hope because they believed in a resurrection. They, everybody followed the Pharisees in general. There was other minor groups, but they were it. And people looked up to these guys. They thought a whole lot of them. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. In fact, Isaiah, who you guys read and memorize, he, when he wrote that prophecy, he was talking about you, you bunch of hypocrites. He said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Wow, what a powerful thing. We we just sang, what a beautiful name it is. And we sang, you have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Did we mean it? Are our passions during the week where, man, we're like, oh, man, stay pure with my thoughts or give into this, you know? Be disrespectful to my kids or my family or do this. And we're just sitting there. And you know what? The reality is many times Jesus does have a rival because we've invited these other things into our life that that we think will bring us satisfaction, that we think will fill that emptiness inside. And you know what? We need to make sure that we, we mean what we sing. I'm not saying don't sing this song. I'm saying just be really careful that when we go out in the week, Jesus is reigning in our life. Jesus is the one saying, Jump, and we say, how high? But you know what we do most of the time during the week? We go, we plan our day, we open our organizer, or we do it on Outlook, and we plan out our day, and not even stop for a moment to pray and ask, is this your will, God? Is this what you want me to do? Yeah, even Monday morning in the office, Jesus should reign in all these things. You see, when that doesn't happen, it's what's called hypocrisy. The Greek word for hypocrisy is hupo krisis. Hupo meaning under, krisis mask to be under the mask. You walk in the church, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm great. Look at me. I'm amazing and everything's great. And on the inside, we're like, yeah, this has been the worst week of my life. No, I'm not saying we do that commonly. I'm saying that's what we want to avoid doing. We don't want to be the person who put on a mask and act like everything's okay. Yeah, there is a time to leave it on the parking lot, okay? I mean, if I came in here After every time Tammy had an argument, you know, I'd be up here and I'd be saying, I'm not preaching today. I'm mad, you know, not that we argue that much, but uh, it happens, right? But there is a time to say, you know what? Let's talk about this later. You leave it on the parking lot. That's not being hypocritical. Okay. But we don't want to play the part like we're all Christian-y on Sunday, but then we're all worldly out there in the world. And we're using language that would be embarrassing if everybody heard it. And it says, in vain do they worship me. And here's the problem, here's the gist of it. They teach as doctrine, which means what Moses actually taught, what the Bible actually teaches, what God actually commands, they fill it in for the commandments of men. So let me like, give you an example. Does the Bible say that we are to shun from evil and not to lust and not to things, things like that? If I said to you that it is, it is a sin to see a PG movie, and I just make up that up. Now, is that right? No. There's some PGs I think you could see. There's some you couldn't. There's some Gs that stink that you don't want to brainwash your kids with. I'm not going to tell you. In fact, like I said, a generation ago there was pastors who preached. If you went into the movie theater, that was the house of Satan. You don't. Anybody remember those days? You, you didn't go to theaters at all. Christians just didn't go. And that was a tradition of men, but they taught it as if it was a commandment of God. And so I, as the pastor, try not to play the Holy Spirit you need to apply biblical principles on in your life and in your home and in your marriage and in the way you raise your kids on your own I mean there's some things that are so extreme we can probably all agree it's wrong and there's some things that we all agree are right but in between that's where the Bible says you need to use discernment for those things and apply it to your life Um, he says you leave and the word leave here means neglect okay the commandment of God and you hold or embrace the tradition of men I think what Mark is creating here is a picture of like a man with his wife. Like you leave your wife and you go and you embrace someone else. And watch how it progresses here. He says, he said to them, you have a fine over rejecting the commandment of God. So now your wife is trying to be affectionate towards you. You're like, no, 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 no. And then you establish your tradition and you're like hold tighter and you start having an affair with your tradition. And then it says, and then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. This is talking about honor your father and mother and their tradition called Korban, which we'll get into in a minute. He said, then what you do is you make void, which means you just totally disrespect or divorce your wife in a situation, which being the word of God. So it starts off as in you're neglecting your wife, you're embracing someone else to where it's totally gone to where you just totally cancel this and embrace something else. So see the, the, the progression here. They take the word of God, they neglect it, reject it, and disrespect it. And that's what happens with, with Christians. You just watch someone who's involved in church, and they're involved in churchianity, but they're not really a follower of Jesus. And they neglect the Bible. They don't read it as much as they should. Every now and then they read it out of guilt, but they neglect it. But eventually, especially if they go off to college and they hear a professor say this, eventually they'll reject the Bible, and then they'll get to where they just totally disrespect the Bible. And we've seen people deconstruct and go through these very steps right here. And, and this, is, this is the danger of it all. When you neglect the Bible, you're going to head down this path. It says you leave, and then here's what they do instead. They're holding to the tradition's men. They're embracing them after they've neglected what they should be in love with. And watch what else they do. They establish, they say, okay, now this is the Word of God. Like, wait a minute. You just went from neglecting the Word of God to saying something else is the Word of God, and you've exalted the tradition. And watch what else they do in yellow there. Your tradition you have handed down. Not only do you say, hey, this is what I think God wants me to do. Here's what everybody else needs to do. Kids, everybody, grandkids, all the generations, you need to do these things. And they're totally ignorant of the scriptures. Don't even know that this is what the Bible says everywhere else. So see the progression, neglect, reject, and disrespect. And now what I do with their traditions, they hold them, they love them. They say, this is my new wife. And now it's a substitute for what God had taught. You say, well, Gary, why go on all this detail? Because if we're not careful, all of us in this room can do this. Where we got our traditions and our way of doing church becomes more important than other ways. And I may, you've seen this meme over here, but I just inserted here. We, we all of a sudden become attracted to traditions and the way of doing church, and we totally turn our backs on the Bible. Be careful, and we're going to see how we can avoid that. So he uses an example. Moses clearly says, "Honor your father and mother." Okay. Notice just as a side here. It doesn't say obey your father and mother. If you live in their household, that's part of it. But if it said obey, then when you turn whatever year old, from some of you guys, 33, and you stop playing video games and move out of your house, okay, uh, then you think, oh, I don't have to obey anymore. Yes, you don't, but you still have to honor. Honor is a lifelong thing that you do with your parents. You always honor them. When you live under the roof, part of that is obeying them. So you guys, here's something that Moses clearly said, and they're totally disrespecting it. Here's what they did. They came up with this thing called Korban. Or Korban, however you want to pronounce it. And it was, if a guy, let's say this guy is married, but he's got some extra money over here, and he says, you know what? I really love God. I'm going to dedicate all my extra wealth to the temple. And I'm going to say all this is dedicated to God. And so let's, of course, they didn't have bank accounts. They, had, they kept their coins in bags and in treasure chests and whatever else. And they basically said, hey, all this money over here hidden in this closet that's all God's. And uh, they, they go to celebrate Shabbat with mom and dad. And mom's like, honey, can I talk to you? And she said, you know, your dad, he injured his back. And the harvest has been really weak this, this year. And we're really having a hard time. Do you think you could help us out? You know I would, mom and dad, but I've dedicated all my extra money to God. Aren't I spiritual? And that's what they do. And, of course, they did it as a loophole because you could uncorban it and whenever you wanted. And, oh, I'm going to undedicate this, spend some of it. And now it's rededicated. And it basically was a way to just be stinking selfish. And that's what they are doing. And they totally blew away what Moses said. But they go, oh, but the tradition of the elders says we can do this. And what book of the Bible did they find that in? Second Opinions chapter 4. Where did they get that? You know, that it's not in there. And yet that's what people will do with their own way of doing Christianity. You see, traditions can be a good thing as a preference. Everybody say Preference. You may prefer a certain way of doing worship, but that's your preference until... But it's going to be... And that'd be a good thing until it becomes an ultimate thing as a conviction. No, it must be this way. We must stand when we sing. We must sing out of a hymn book. We must do contemporary music. We must not do contemporary music. There has to be an organ. No, there can't be an organ. No, there need... And people get that way... In fact, one time... this This is about probably 20 years ago. There was a family that left our church. They had a bunch of teenagers in my youth ministry... And I called on them to say, hey, we have missing you, whatever. And they said, well, we decided to go over to the Methodist Church because they have a better youth ministry. I'm like, but you know that they don't teach what we teach, and we don't teach the Bible that even actually they baptize babies, and this particular Methodist Church teaches you to be a good person to go to heaven. Yeah, but they have a great youth ministry. What? Do you want to join a church with a great youth ministry? Great. But you need to go first where the Bible is taught. And people truly love each other. And if they have all these other things, it's icing on the cake. But it's amazing what people will do to justify their own way of doing things. Um, my brother went to a university that was a Christian university. But they were very, very much the fighting fundamentalists I talked about. Okay, They believed that beards were worldly. See that, Larry? You're worldly, man. <laughs> Great beard there, by the way. Um, they really, they taught that beards today are po- very popular, but back in this time, they weren't popular. Hippies had beards, and we don't want to associate with hippies. But um, Jesus had a beard. Yeah, but that was then. Wait, wait a minute. You can't have your cake and eat it too. All of a sudden, you say the Bible applies everything. And when liberals say, well, that was then, you say, no, 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 it applies to it today. But then all of a sudden, you could do that with beards? And so they would have guys speak in chapel, and, and if they, some of them were okay with baptizing babies, which is clearly unbiblical, but they said you couldn't speak in chapel if you had a beard. And I'm like, Jesus said a phrase that applies to this, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. The gnat being, oh, you got a beard, I can't do that. Oh, God, that makes me sick. And then you swallow something like infant baptism, which is clearly unbiblical. And people get caught up in their own traditions and, and fight over these things. Churches can disagree on how to do communion. The Bible says we should do communion, Amen. But it's pretty vague on how. It's vague on how often. I, I believe it's probably weekly, and they probably did it weekly, but I can't make a very strong case for that. Okay? I, I, some people say it's either weekly or it's annually, like every year at the Passover. And there's a good case for that because that's how often they did the Passover. But you know what? I think that Jesus left it purposely unclear so that each church could apply it the best they knew how. But churches will fight over that. Um, churches will disagree on whether it should be wine or grape juice you know churches for hundreds of years did did wine but then when prohibition came in did you know that a deacon in a church figured out a way to um, pasteurize grape juice so it would stay and not go bad and his name was Welch and he pasteurized that so it would last so that they wouldn't do alcohol in church and that was back in the early 1900 19 what 11 anyway whenever that was prohibition all that so anyway, but I lean towards using wine in the Lord's Supper. But you know what? I'm not going to fight over it. I, I, there, there's a lot of things. You know, I don't know for sure which one is right or I can prove it 100%. We all have our preferences. But to sit there and say, you must do it this way. And there was churches that would fight and even split over whether you did it weekly or monthly or quarterly and all that stuff like that. And that's all the tradition of men. Some people, I, I prefer contemporary Christian music, okay? Um, and but you know what? If, if a church, if I move into a small town and they've got a church that preaches the word of God in a rock-solid way, but they sing hymns and they got an old-fashioned choir and there's no drums, I'm going to go to that church because the word of God should be number one, not my musical preference. And this is going to be really difficult for me to say, okay? So bear with me here. Pray for me, okay? I would go to a church that teaches the word of God faithfully And verse by verse, even if the music sounded like country music. I I hate country music. Don't get me started. But I would do it because that's my preference, right? And we cannot put our preferences above the Word of God. Man, some people, I want to go to a church where it's fire and brimstone and the pastor wears a tie and he preaches loud and whatever, whatever. And then there's other people, I want to go to a modern church where it's, it's more like a, a TED Talk and, and he uses a screen and he dresses casually, whatever. You know, he dresses like Gary. You know, I want, You know what? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Okay? These are all preferences. When, when we look for a church we sh- and when we want our church to continue to be the way we want it to be, not just the way we want it to be, but the way that God wants it to be, based on the Word of God, we've got to set all those preferences aside and say what matters most. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ being taught? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ being lived? Okay, the rest is just is preferences, He said, the traditions of men, he quoted Isaiah. And back in Isaiah's time, he was battling the exact same thing. They were all obsessed with burnt offerings. And God's saying, oh man, I'd rather you just not sin in the first place. I I would rather have repentance over sacrifice, right? And then they were all about incense because incense represented their prayers. He's like, I'd actually, you actually pray, then light the candles, Okay. And they're all about the new moons and the Sabbaths and what happens when and all keeping the calendar and all that stuff like that. And, and Isaiah's like, you know what? I would just rather you love God than do all this stuff. And Jesus had the same thing in his day. What were the big traditions then? It was extreme Sabbath keeping. Man, it it's just like the Pharisees had it down to you could carry a bag, but it couldn't weigh more than so many ounces or pounds or whatever they measured in because then it would be work. And you can walk, but you can't walk more than a mile and a half, or then all of a sudden it becomes work. And you can't cook or clean or whatever, you know. And so, so you could pick up something you dropped on the floor, but if you pick up more than three items, now you're cleaning house and you're working on the Sabbath. And man, they had, they had all kinds of things. And, and God's like, would you just quit that? I gave you a Sabbath so you can rest. Would you just chill? Chill. That's the rule. Chill. Okay? Chill, worship me, and have a good time with your family. Forget all these rules. And um. They, they're all about the washing of hands, you know. The Lord was like, just wash your hands before you eat. It's a good idea. Okay, and they're like, oh, but you have to wash it this way. You have to wash it with this water. You have to say this. And then, of course, the whole idea of Korban. Again, that was a big tradition. Parents were being neglected as a Pharisee saying, oh, but I'm religious. I've dedicated all my money to God. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Sorry, you have to find, beg for food or something. But we've got traditions in our day, and I can talk about a lot of them. I'm only going to pick on a few just for application. One of the big traditions in our day is infant baptism. Do you see anywhere in the Bible a baby ever baptized? No. And I, listen, I, I listen to some Presbyterian preachers, okay? I, li, I like listen to, to Tim Keller, as you probably know, R.C. Sproul and all that. And I've heard them, who are supposed to be the leading Presbyterians, make the best biblical case for infant baptism. And I'm like, and that's all you got? <laughs> that's what you did? <laughs> you know, that's the best you could do? Because it, it's just not in there. In fact, you see the opposite. People have to come to an understanding that they are a sinner in need of a savior and they literally believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as their only hope. Can a a six-week-old do that? Can a one-year-old do that? No, I don't think you can two-year-old. We can can talk about what age. Bible doesn't say an age, okay? I think it's a matter of intellect and understanding and God working on the heart. But that's a big deal, infant baptism. And so why do they do it? Why do they still hold on to all that? Yeah, I, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Am I saying Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopals are not Christians? I'm not saying that. I'm saying they have this one big doctrinal problem because they're doing what? They're holding on to the traditions of men. Because they broke away from the Catholic Church and they wanted to hold on to that one part of Catholicism and not let it go. And that's a whole nother discussion. But people get all into style music. We talked about that just then. You know what? churches have died all over America because they won't let go of their style of music. It's like, well, if Amazing Grace was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me, you know? And they're just gonna sing that over and over again. And what's, what's crazy about that is that you know that the, the Amazing Grace was very controversial when it was first written? Because Amazing Grace was sung to a pub song. Everybody in the pubs knew this one thing, and they were singing, you know, this with their beers, and they're all singing, and guess what else was in the pub? The pipe organ. They played pipe organ and sung this tune that eventually became Amazing Grace. So when they started bringing organs in the church, like, no, no, don't bring that thing in there from the bar room in here. Like, yeah, but we all just got saved, and that's what we like to sing to. Like, no, 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 don't do that. And no, no, don't, you got to sing Amazing Grace. The words are good, but you're singing to this bar room song. And they're like, what does it matter? And now all of a sudden, our grandma and grandpa are like, oh, Amazing Grace, that came directly from the throne of God, you know? And all of a sudden, it just becomes, and all of a sudden, an organ, don't you dare touch that organ. Didn't you know there's churches today, there's a church in Virginia that had an organ fund, okay? And they were saving up tens of thousands of dollars for a new elaborate pipe organ. But a new pastor came in and made the church contemporary. And they had this, I think it was like $60,000 in the organ fund, but they didn't have an organ anymore. And they weren't going to buy a new one. And there was old people in the church saying, you can't spend that money on anything else. It has to be for an organ. That's what we gave it for. It's like, but we don't have an organ anymore. Well, it's because we go on liberal, as if organs decide what, whether a church is conservative or liberal. It's just crazy. Um, and you know, a third thing, and this, this, is, this probably hits closer to home for most of us, buildings. People become very obsessed about buildings. We've had people who attended or actually visited Revolution Church when we used to be in the bounce town. And they'd say, well, maybe we'll come back when you actually get a real church. I heard that phrase several times. I'm like, I would just nod and smile. Inside, I'm like, the church is the body of Christ. It's the people. It's not a building. But never mind. Go and learn what this means. Okay. And, and it, there's people who do that. There's people who will not go, who will not attend a church unless they've got a nice building. Oh, and that, that building better have a steeple on it. Because everybody knows a steeple, that's how we reach up to God and show that we're spiritual. I'm not against steeples, but I also don't believe that you have to have a steeple or white columns or stained glass or whatever. In fact, I think these kinds of buildings do more to confuse people than help. That's just, that's just my opinion. Everybody say it's his opinion. Okay. I, I believe people say, oh, we went up to the church today. No, you didn't. You went up to the building today. And you'll hear me say the church building, the church building. And that's been really difficult for me in this transition. And some people think, you know, when you're in here, oh my gosh, you're standing on holy ground. As if if we were out in the parking lot, that would be less holy. For centuries, Christians met in homes, in the catacombs, on hillsides, wherever they could gather and maybe not get killed. In China, they're meeting in underground basements with one light bulb and a packed room. Are you telling me they're less spiritual than we are because they don't have stained glass or a steeple or pews or hymnals or little holes to hold your communion cup? Man, I, I'm thrilled that we have a building. But I do not want to become building-centric, okay? I, um, I, the, there's dangers of becoming building-centric where your Christianity revolves around this building. Again, I'm thankful we have a great place to meet. God totally orchestrated this. Brother Stan has been amazing. I, in fact, give him a hand. He's been super good. But what I'm, what I'm scared of for, for those of us who are new to this building is that we all of a sudden make this our focal point. I was at a church on the North Freeway for 10 years, from 86 to 96, sitting there on 10 acres, three massive buildings, and they were beautiful. And people, most of the people, and I would venture to say probably 80 to 90% of the people, the way that they served God was to go up to the building and do something. Go up to the building and fold bulletins. Go up to the building and vacuum. Go up to the building and clean glass. Go up to the building and build something. And all they did was focus on the building as if that's where God was. When Jesus clearly said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And nobody was going out making disciples, but everybody would show up for the Easter pageant. Everybody would show up to make decorations and costumes for the Christmas pageant. And we became so obsessed with that building... That we wouldn't even share the gospel with somebody right next door. But man, we'd go up there to serve and serve the Lord for eight hours at the church. We'd go up to the church. And what did they mean by the church? They meant the building. I hope as the Lord grows this church here, this one new church that God has formed, that we love this building, we take care of this building, but we don't worship this building. And if God burns this building down, we will still meet and still love Jesus and not feel any less Christ-like. And if it becomes against the law to meet this building, to, if, if someday we show up and there's a padlock on this door and the police say you're violating COVID regulations or you're, you're spreading hate speech because you're preaching against homosexuality or you're doing all kinds of stuff and they lock the door, whatever, have it. We're moving on down the road. We'll meet somewhere else. We'll meet in a warehouse wherever the rain doesn't fall on ahead. If it rains, we'll meet in the rain. Just don't, don't become building-centered type of people. Don't let any man-made tradition of the way we do church become an idol. Oh, I love them. They stop. We have a new worship leader, and I don't like the way he does the music. We're going to go look for another church. We have a new pastor, and I don't really like the way he preaches. He doesn't preach like Brother Gary, and he was so amazing. And then I, don't want, to, I want a preacher who preaches like Brother Gary. And you know, at that same church, there was people, when that church kind of fell apart, there was people who to this day still don't go to church because it's not like Berean. Man, throw all that away. Just go where they preach the word of God and they live it and they love people. It says, and he called people to him again and he said to them, hear me, all of you understand there is nothing outside a person that going by intent can defile them. You can't get a demon from a piece of bread, okay? It's not gonna happen because of your hands, but the things that come out of a person well, that defile them. He's basically saying, you get all obsessed about the way you wash your hands, because you want to make sure you eat the right food, it's all kosher, there's not too much fat, it's all this or that. But you are going to be, but you sit there and disrespect the widows. Or you talk back to your spouse, or you yell and scream at your kids, but man, you're all obsessed with what goes into your body. That doesn't make any sense at all. He said, and then verse 16 is interesting. Um, in, in some translations, it's not even there. In the ESV, it goes from 15 to 17. And some people get all shook up about this because like, oh my gosh, they're taking stuff out of my Bible. Okay, here's what what it's about. In some manuscripts, it's in there because Matthew said it. And so some scribes say, well, Matthew finished the story with this, so I'm going to put this in there. And the scribe adds a note. Jesus actually said this phrase five other times. So it's not like this is something Jesus shouldn't have said, and now it's taken out or put back in. And people get all obsessed like with King James Bible. Like, oh, look, they're taking verses out. No, it's just some manuscripts have it in and some don't. We think the more reliable manuscripts didn't have it, but scribes added notes to help us. You know, and since I brought up. So, so, for example, the model prayer. Our Father who, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil, evil or the evil one, depending on which translation you read. And that's where it ends. But in those days, everybody entered a prayer with, in yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's how they ended every prayer. So the scribe wrote that in. There's nothing unbiblical about that. It's not unbiblical if you say the Lord's Prayer without that ending. It's not unbiblical to say it with it. And all the, when people will say, oh, the Bible's changed. This is the kind of minor, minor, minor stuff that we're talking about. It's in the Bible. It just some people disagree whether it was in this chapter or not. So when people say oh, there's, there's contradictions in the Bible and they use this, it's so lame. It's just not even, it's not even close to a contradiction. It says that when he had entered the house and left, left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, it's a parable. Jesus is not teaching science. He is not saying, you can put anything in your mouth you want to and it won't hurt you. So go ahead and drink that arsenic. Sure, help yourself to a cup of bleach. It's a parable. He's not trying to teach science. Some people say, see, Jesus says stupid things like you can put anything you want in your body and it won't hurt you. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's clearly a parable. And he said to them, and you could, I don't know how to read this without seeing frustrated Jesus. And, and he has a right to be frustrated. I, I, I could read this with no emotion. Are you also without understanding? It's like, bless your little heart. <laughs> you guys are so stupid. The crowd doesn't get it. I understand, but you guys don't get it. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And again, it's a parable. He's not saying eat whatever you want. We need to be careful about that. Um, and he says, since it enters not into his heart. And again, he's not talking about the literal cardio organ that pumps blood. He's talking about your innermost being. But his stomach is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, by the way. This was before the book of Acts. He's saying eat what you want. Don't worry about it. So, think about the way we treat our bodies. You've got a choice between healthy food on the left and not so healthy food on the right. And you can see how one would do damage to your body and one would help your body. And, like Amanda always says, that food is medicine. You know, you're either getting good medicine in your body or bad medicine. But the spiritual equivalent is what? Fellowship, the Word of God, prayer, being around godly people. That's putting good things into your heart that make you healthier. But here's where the, the application goes wrong. What should we put in that other corner to be the equivalent of junk food? Oh, we'd say, oh, bad movies and, and rap music with bad lyrics and, well, all country music's godly, so not that one. Um, and then, uh, man, don't watch this and don't listen to cuss words. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus talked about the problem is in your own heart. That's where the problem comes from. You see... Yes, should we keep ourselves and our kids away from all kinds of ungodly things? Yes. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to insulate them totally. You should insulate them. Some people say, I heard someone say, and this was talking about a second grader seeing pornography, and the dad said, well, they're going to see it eventually anyway. (laughs) If I had been there when this conversation happened, I would have decked him in in a Christian way, but I would have punched him in the face. We need to shelter ourselves, and we need to shelter our kids from a lot of things. But you can't shelter them from everything. And their biggest problem is not everything out in the world, but what's in their heart. And and, and you may have the sweetest little kid in the world, okay? Okay? Um, Evangeline, she's sweet as could be. But she's a sinner. And she can get selfish. She doesn't care it's 2.30 in the morning you've had a rough day. She is going to wake you up and say, feed me, feed me, and I will scream at the highest pitch possible until you do and have no consideration for her parents whatsoever. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Your child's biggest problem, my biggest problem, is right here and right here. And Jesus says, this is where the problem starts. You can't blame it on everybody else. Or th- and the Pharisees are all obsessed with externals. Oh, don't hang around those people. Those people are filthy. In fact, if you come in contact with the den- Gentile, you have to go wash seven times and do all this stuff. The problem isn't out there. The problem isn't here. And that's what the Pharisees were misleading people about. Jesus says in verse 21, He said, so From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery. Now, I want you to notice here. Let me keep reading, and I want you to see if you notice something. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Sometimes when you see listen, in the Bible, there's like a progression. It starts small and gets big. Or sometimes it starts big and gets small. Or sometimes it does categories. And you know what Jesus does here? He just kind of shotguns it. And he puts on the same list envy. Wow, she's got a nicer house than I do. And Murder on the same list wickedness man you're out there you're just the biggest pervert in the world and slander or gossip or even foolishness or even pride look how he scatters it all the way he's trying to give such a mixed list where he doesn't pick all the worst things doesn't pick all the small things he picks all the things and say they're all a part of your heart problem he said all these evils come from within they defile the person and the Pharisees taught all the. In fact, remember, if you go back to the Chosen, um, you see Nicodemus teaching, and what he's teaching is everything opposite what Jesus said. He talks about all these things. And, you know, if you, kept, if you eat fish that was caught on Shabbat, doesn't that defile you? Remember that line? And, and, and it's just like that's what the Pharisees thought. Everything was blamed on somebody else. And you know what we do? In our marriages and in our relationships, well, if he would only, if she would only. If my boss would just be, and we blame all our sinful reactions on things external, when the Bible says your biggest problem is here. We're all sinners. We're all extremely selfish. We're, we all can wicked, do all kinds of wicked imaginations. You could put yourself in a desert away from every temptation, no technology in your hands, and this mind will come up with some of the vilest things. This will come up with the most selfish thoughts, the most self-centered thoughts. And we think those defile us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And that is all of us. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or nor men with practice homosexuality. And he goes on to say, And such were some of you. But, read the red line with me. But you were washed. You see, they, were, they felt unclean and defiled because of all they ate or because they didn't wash their hands properly. And Jesus says, No, no, your problem's in here. And you used to be all those things. And that list is so similar to what Jesus' list was. He said, But guess what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. All that stuff is past tense. Now, do you still slip up every now and then? Absolutely, because you still live in a simple body. But your spirit, man, your soul has been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ if you know him as your savior. It says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You see, Jesus died for this wicked heart that no amount of washing will ever cleanse. Only his blood can cleanse it away. You see, I deserve to die on that cross, but he took my place. You deserve to die on that cross, but he took your place. My question for you this morning is, do you know him? Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified? Would everybody bow your heads and close your eyes with me and just pray or just focus and just leave out any distractions as we wrap this up this morning. But it's so important that if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you've made a decision. We're not talking about did you grow up in church or were you baptized or anything like that. We're asking, have you ever repented of your sinfulness and let Jesus wash away your sins? Let Jesus justify you if you haven't done that you can make that decision right here right now and and prayer doesn't save you it's by faith but you can express something out to Jesus like this Lord Jesus I know I'm a sinner I am so thankful that you died in my place I trust you right now to save me to forgive all my sins past present and future and to make me a new person to make me clean on the inside thank you for washing me sanctifying me and justifying me and I thank you. I make you the Lord of my life. I give my life to you right now because you gave your life for me. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you made a decision to trust Christ, whether you're here in person or you were watching online, please let me know that. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a new child of God. We're going to do a question and answer. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? All right, come on up here. So feel free to text in your questions. Um, some, I see some have already come in. If for some reason we don't ask you a question, it's probably because the text didn't go through because of lack of reception here. But um, we've got a good few questions already going here. And if you want to raise your hand in person, you certainly can do that.
2: Okay, first question. I learned about the Westland Quadrilateral at a Nazarene college. It considers scripture along with tradition, reason, and experience to make sense of our Christian faith and how we should worship and serve. Is the focus on tradition problematic with this approach to theology?
0: I don't know much about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I barely can say it. Um, I was listening to a, a, um, a podcast, actually this morning when I was walking my dogs, about if you're, I grew up Catholic, and the Catholic Church believes that since Jesus didn't make it clear which traditions were good and which ones were bad, it's up to the church to decide which ones are good and bad. And so therefore, when the church decides that a tradition like Lent or the, the, the church calendar, it is, it, in their minds, it becomes equal with Scripture. And I think that's dangerous. So I think that um, if the Scripture doesn't say it, we can't put it on the same par as Scripture. We can have church traditions. You know, we just had a, a Christmas play with the kids. We can make that an every year thing. We can maybe not. And I guarantee you, if we did it five years in a row and we decided not to do it, there'd be people upset because that's our tradition. Um, where is that in Luke chapter 2? I don't, I don't see that, you know. We, you know, um, I think this applies. 13 times in, in the Old Testament it says, sing unto the Lord a new song. I think God wants us to do new things based on the same old truth, but new ways of expressing it. You know, whether that be with the Christmas program one year and no Christmas program the next year. Candlelight service one year, not candlelight service you know, there's some traditions that are good, but every tradition has its expiration date, and you just need to replace it with something new. But I'm sorry I don't know more about the quadrilateral.
2: Next question. Reading through Genesis this last month, the biggest question in my mind has been, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? How deep does this go? For instance, some believe that this is the basis for God's commandment not to make a graven image because we are already His image.
0: That, that's exactly it right there. In fact, really, th- this question is far deeper than I can answer, but a really good podcast or video to, to read is by the Bible Project when they talk about the image of God. And it talks about, um, w- so the disciples talked about taxes, and Jesus says, well, give me a coin. He says, whose image do you see on it? It's the image of Caesar, okay? And he says that, you know, get, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, but you render to God. You're the image of God. Give yourself to God. Give these coins the image of, of Caesar, who thought of himself as God, to Caesar. But you're the representation of God. You're the template of God. Okay? We're not God. We're not Mormons. We don't believe we're ascending the Godhead or Godhood. Okay? Mormons believe that. Mormons have a saying um, that as God is, man once was. And as man is, man can become like God. I think I butchered that somewhere. But anyway, they believe every, the reason there's billions of planets is because every, someday if you do God's will right, you're going to have your own planet, have your own Adam and Eve, and you're going to be God and do the whole thing over again. Crazy. Anyway, but um, image of God also, it means that we're the imprint of God. So therefore, we don't need to make a, a graven image of God because we're it. When, that's why when you murder someone, it's the death penalty because you've attacked the very image of God. That's different than killing a dog. Killing a dog is not a good thing, unless you're putting out its misery. But killing a person is a whole other thing because you've now defaced the image of God. And I think we're also creating an image of God because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we are body, soul, and spirit. I think there's parallels there, but that's just a fraction of it.
2: Okay, next. My question is, is it important when a new believer is being baptized that they say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and not mention Jesus, in Jesus' name? Which way is correct?
0: Great question. Been debated for centuries. Um, In Matthew 28, it says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Later in the book of Acts, it says, in Jesus' name. And the way that I interpret this, and again, it's my interpretation, is that in Jesus' name was a summary of what Jesus said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are some denominations, mostly Pentecostal, in fact, specifically United Pentecostal, uh, who doesn't believe in the Trinity, who baptize only in the name of Jesus, and therefore all other baptisms are wrong. If, you, if someone was baptized in the name of Jesus, I wouldn't have a fit about it. I prefer to mention all three members of the Trinity, uh, just because that's what Jesus says in, in a couple of places, specifically Matthew 28 19. I think later when the apostles did in the name of Jesus, it was just a summary statement of what he said in the Great Commission. But I'm open to discussion on that one.
2: How does Tim Keller or others justify infant baptism, and how do you refute their teaching? Thanks.
0: Great. Um, so here's how they justify it. In the Old Testament, babies were circumcised. But again, only males. So it doesn't apply to the females. What do you, you're kind of lost there right at the beginning. But it was a mark that didn't save you, but did say you're set apart for God. So they would say that, new, that the New Testament equivalent of circumcision is baptism. If you baptize a baby, it doesn't save them. It just sets them apart for God, saying, we're going to raise you in a Christian home. Okay, but then the problem is not what it does, but what it doesn't do. So what do you do when you're 11 years old and you accept Christ as your Savior? You can't get baptized because you've already been baptized. But wait a minute, baptism, here's the problem. Okay, the the King James translators were all, all Anglicans. The Anglican church practiced infant baptism. So they were trying their best, at least to some degree, to translate as accurately as possible. But then they came to certain words that went against the Anglican church, and were like, ooh, we're going to get in trouble if we do this. King James is not only going to fire us, he'll probably kill us. So we come to the word ecclesia, which means a gathering or an assembly. But all the Anglicans meet in cathedrals and chapels and churches. They, they thought the building was a church. So let's not, let's not translate it gathering or assembly. Let's use the German word kirk for cathedral, and they translate that way and said, let you decide. They they did the same thing when they came to the word baptism. It clearly means immerse. It means dunk. And they're like, yeah, but the Anglican Church doesn't dunk. And if we say dunk or immerse, we're all going to get fired or put in jail. So we're going to create a word that has never existed before. The Greek word is baptizo. We're going to say baptism or baptize. And we're going to make up, it's called transliterating, we're going to make up an English word. Like when we say, uh, if you wanted ice cream on your pie, you would be what? Alamo, its a French word. We don't bother to say with uh, vanilla ice cream. And by the way, Alamo doesn't even mean ice cream. It, ha- it means in the way or in style. Totally. Anyway, so to not make, ruffle any feathers, they came up with the word baptism, which was not even a word up until that point. Unfortunately, if they translated immerse, we wouldn't have this issue, okay? Because that's what it clearly means. Um, Philip, and Ethiopian eunuch, it says they both went down to the water. They both came up out of the water. If I'm going to sprinkle you, I'd be like, you wait here, I'll wade out into the water. <laughs> you know, I don't even need, I don't even need to wade out. I can get a cup of water from the edge and sprinkle you. So, and the most important reason is because it's biblical. That's how I'd refute it. Because in Romans chapter 4, it says, We are buried with him in baptism, in the likeness of his death, and raised to walk in the newness of life. If, if this is the death, burn, and resurrection, all I'm doing is throwing dirt at you. This is to be buried and rose ri- rise again so it's very clear we so it messes with the gospel if the gospel is the death burn, and resurrection of Christ did you know one of the best sermons you will ever see is someone getting baptized I believe Jesus died for me that he was buried and he rose again and I'm gonna walk a new life that's amazing there was a guy who came to our church at revolution when we were meeting in bounce Down, and he never he told me one Sunday I've never made a decision for Christ I'm still thinking about it. I'm gonna keep thinking about it. he came for two years Never made a decision. But then one Sunday after someone got baptized, he came to me and said, I need to make a decision. It was that sermon, the baptism was the one of the best sermons he had ever seen. That's how lame my word. But anyway, <laughs> any others?
2: Um, yeah, I'm just going to pause. Oh, darn it. I don't have the same phone, so you have to give me back okay. to the question, sorry. No problem. There's an alarm that went off. There okay. we go. Can one truly be saved and not like country music?
0: No. <laughs> um, I thought I answered that wrong. Uh, no, they, you can be truly saved no matter what kind of music you, you listen to.
2: That was the last question. Oh, someone in the audience has a question. Yes.
0: It means to immerse. It means to dunk or to immerse, okay? Um, that's why it talks about that... Um, even the Israel, it says they were baptized unto Moses. Because why? They all went into the Red Sea. Okay? They didn't get sprinkled with the Red Sea. <laughs> they went into the Red Sea. Now, of course, it parted for them. But they were, they were all, so it, it means to be fully covered. So, um, yeah. I could tell some funny stories about baptism, but I won't this morning because I've already kept you long enough.